Madame Curie, how long have you been making your experiments with this unknown element? For the past three, three and a half years. And have these burns given you much pain? No. They've been irritating at times. I never paid much attention to them until lately. Hmm. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Rasslin. I'm David Daw. And this week we watched the second-to-last movie in the 1943 awards, Madame Curie, starring Greer Garson and that guy who's always in movies with her whose name I don't remember. Yeah. Walter Pigeon. That's it. <laughs> in this movie about Marie Curie's husband. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think this movie, though, finally crystallized for me what it is about biopics that were made during the first 50 years of film, <laughs> or at least like the first 15 years of Academy Award nominated ones. And why they don't work is because they are always about the subject's relationship to other people in their life and not about their actual work or what it is that they are famous for. I mean, I don't know what Marie Curie and Pierre Curie's marriage was like. I don't know that anyone really does, but it wasn't very interesting. Yeah, I mean, this was one of the ones where I should read up on her because this is not my understanding of her. It's not like I've read a bunch of books on her. It's just my understanding of her is that this film sort of presents it as like this marriage of the minds that both of them were very withdrawn intellectual figures that really just wanted to drive ahead toward scientific progress. And my understanding is she was a very progressive figure where she was just like, no, I want to do everything. Also, I want to fuck. Like, it's not just I want to do science. And that her husband was just sort of like, well, I mean, you're Marie Curie, so like, I guess just whatever it takes. <laughs> Again, I don't really know what their relationship was like, other than that neither of them wanted to have a religious service when they got married. She basically just wore what was the equivalent of her lab coat for the wedding. And they definitely, you know, worked together a lot, but I don't think that it was... Um, she, she never struck me as being a Greer Garson, if that makes sense. Like, she was a lot less sort of feminine and polite and pretty and sweet, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing about this movie is because she has to keep asking permission to be Marie Curie, essentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> over and over in this movie, just by default... Pierre Curie, Walter Pigeon's character, becomes the lead of this movie because she's a woman, so he has to be the active character. Yes. Even when it is her discovery, the brief moments this movie becomes interesting are the moments where it becomes about how he could be supportive of her career. 
And the rest of the time, it just ends up being him making the big speeches over and over again that by rights she ought to be making. Right. And instead it's him giving a big speech about how she ought to be the one giving this big speech. She does have one of them. And that was really the only moment in the film where I thought, okay, well, maybe we're going to finally get somewhere that is interesting where she is very passionate about isolating radium. Right? Mm-hmm. And that lasted a minute and a half and was about an hour plus into a two hour film. <laughs> maybe more than that, maybe an hour and a half. I realized at the very end in her final big speech after the time jump that, oh, this is A Star is Born, but science. Except boring. <laughs> Right, because this movie also doesn't know how to dramatize science in any way, and so shoehorns in this weird narration. This movie is bad because it is boring. It starts off with Marie Curie as Marie Sklodowska. I don't quite have a handle on how to pronounce it, and neither does the movie. Studying in Paris at the Sorbonne, she is so into class that she forgets to eat and ends up fainting in class, which ends up going great for her because she ends up being befriended by this old professor that quasi sets her up with Pierre Curie in setting her up with a lab job so she can have some more pocket money and, like, remember to eat. And also so she has people in Paris. It doesn't even necessarily feel like he's trying to get her a boyfriend so much as here's a person who will know you exist right and during this period i'm actually kind of on board with this movie still this is like 15 minutes in and then we get to the long period with his lab assistant and with his lab assistant and him both sort of falling for her. Yes. It becomes this sort of weird romantic comedy about a guy with absolutely no self-knowledge or knowledge of when he is being hit on. (laughs) And again, I'm with this movie. I felt a lot of affinity with Pierre Curie during this period of the film. (laughs) The question for me was like, okay, now then when do we get to the part about all the interesting and cool stuff Marie Curie does? around now and the answer is never (laughs) no they sort of have this thing where he gets increasingly angry with her because she's going to go back to prague and be with her father poland yeah uh or poland yes and he like keeps being very very upset but very very upset on behalf of science question mark or at least he believes that where he's just like well i can't believe you would do this to science (laughs) yeah it's very important To science that you not leave. And definitely not me. I mean, you know, what are you going to do in Poland? They don't even have science in Poland. Is basically how he frames this. Mm -hmm. And ends up, you know, asking her back to his parents' place, you know, for science. (laughs) Yes. And finally figuring out that he is in love with her. And gives this big, I thought, very cute and interesting speech about like... This is a way we can have this equitable relationship and both follow science and not have things disrupt it because we're both of one mind and can just work toward a common purpose and not undermine each other. And she's like, yeah, that makes sense. And he's like, no, I have more. And oh, wait, wait, what? That may- Okay. <laughs> yeah, that is basically how that happens. I think you nailed it that this is actually a movie about him 
But it's also strangely a film about a man who is hopelessly in love with this woman for reasons that, as far as I can tell from the movie, are she's pretty and generally quiet, but is playing a character who is trying to convince this incredibly brilliant genius who's probably a little bit difficult to get along with and has her mind focused on things other than human relationships. But she's not playing that woman, so why are you courting that woman? Yeah. And also, why don't we get that woman? Uh, Yeah. The problem with this movie is that it's a pretty competent romantic comedy that needs to be a movie about Marie Curie and just never is. Yeah. Because now we're to the part where the romantic comedy is done. They've gotten married. There was a brief scene earlier that was honestly brief was giving it too much credit because this movie, again, does not know how to explain science or make science interesting at all. So there's this sort of interminable scene where another guy goes, hey, I have found these weird rocks and they're radiating energy. But like, I need to explain that to you for 15 minutes using parchment paper and like a very thorough explanation of the scientific method. And on their honeymoon, Marie Curie is like, hey, those rocks that were radiating energy sound interesting to me. So I might spend some time just figuring out what all that radioactive rocks shit is about. Right. And he goes, that sounds fun. And then there is this incredibly long sequence. My God. Where the rocks are radiating too much energy. For their constituent parts. Right. And it takes forever for her to go, oh, there must be some additional element in the sample that is, even in an incredibly vanishingly small amount, radiating a tremendous amount of energy to make up for the amount of radiation the sample is putting out versus the amount of elements we know radiate energy. And if you think that explanation was boring... Try it for 10 minutes. Yeah, this movie really does not know how to make the science interesting. So it largely skips it entirely or does montages with voiceover to be like, and here's what happened or have them explain it in such incredibly simplistic terms as to be uh, infuriating. And this is a problem actually that I find even sometimes in contemporary biopics where they're like, oh, let's us, these two experts on this subject, converse about how the subject works so that the audience understands it. And also this seems incredibly forced and like a TED talk. Yeah. And that is kind of what that is. But also not every TED talk is compelling. There is a bit on The New Girl where one of the characters can't do pranks because their pranks are either all way too big or way too small. Yes. Oh, it's one of my favorite things, actually. Winston's pranks. It's a great bit, but it is surprisingly similar to this movie's approach to explaining science. (laughs) Yes. Because it's either like two seconds of, well, and then we just isolated that element Their relationship to the scientific community is so bizarrely hand-waved. Just like, well, you're one of the most famous people alive, and if you think radium exists, then we're doing okay. And it's like, he thinks radium exists? Why have we never heard from this guy fucking at all? Yeah, he just swings by their lab one day, and they're like, oh yes, you incredibly famous science guy. 
well, I gotta go back to England now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Meanwhile, they're like, well, let me explain isolating a single element to you for literally 20 minutes of this film are spent explaining or watching them separate parts of a sample out. Yes. Which largely consists of having it sit under a glass in a dish. I get the focus on it in terms of the amount of time spent on it, because it was years of their life. They were never sure it was going to come to anything, and it literally killed her. Yes. Standing next to radioactive material for years on end is what killed Marie Curie. And the movie kind of head fakes toward caring about that and then doesn't at all. Well, and the other thing, too, is that there is that little moment that's kind of interesting where they think that they've lost it, that after all of these years of breaking down this rock, that they're finally going to isolate the radium. And then they come back to the lab and there's nothing in the dish. And she just, like, loses her mind and she's really upset about it. Which is fair, I would be, too. And then later that evening question mark or perhaps two weeks not really clear she says oh what about that little stain on the dish let's go back to the lab and check and then they're like running out their house door to go to the lab which is across the yard and they can see it glowing it was kind of a nice thing that they did i guess but again it felt very contrived to be like well what about that stay? It does feel kind of contrived, but also in being kind of contrived, it's so much more interesting than everything around it that I'm like, please make everything this contrived. That's fair. It's so much more interesting when they're talking to their daughter and trying to explain what they do all day to their daughter than when the narrator is like, they worked day and night at a forge trying to separate all the materials. If they had known then what radium would do, would they have continued working through the nights and the long winter hours? And you're like, oh my God, couldn't you fucking do science? And that happens for 20 minutes. That voiceover is so long. Just show me them doing the science in the lab. Yeah. Or show me how they're reacting to the science. If you're that disinterested in the science, if you have that little faith that the science will hold our attention, which you clearly do, show us them living their life under the strain of doing all of this work for nothing. Because that's the dramatically interesting part anyway. Right. And just sort of hand wave all that work and just show us the result of all of that work and having nothing to show for it. And instead, they're like, show eight different frustrating setbacks in the process. And every time they go, I'm frustrated. I am too. I want to quit. I also want to quit. What if we did this new thing? Let's find out. That happens like five times. Right. But the new thing you don't ever get to see, it's just, oh, I want to quit. Me too. Well, why don't we not instead? Because again, it's just about their relationship. Yeah. As a husband and wife, not as two scientists working together. There's moments of things being interesting here. I found the scene where he rants at the school board to get them the shed and he keeps doing rants and she keeps kind of pulling him back down and going like, you're making me look bad, essentially. Mm -hmm. Kind of interesting. Like you said, that moment where they go in and they see the radium through the window is kind of a nice moment. But all of the stuff around it is so boring, and the movie seems to find it boring, which just makes it more boring. Right. But they do eventually 
you know, isolate radium, which makes them instantly world famous, which seems weird, but okay. They go on a vacation. Did you also have the experience where there's this like weird period where they're world famous and so reporters are desperately trying to get in contact with them? And this reporter comes in and not knowing who she is and goes like, oh, I got to get a scoop. It's like my first day on the job. I got to get something. And she goes, well, I have a scoop for you. And then she goes, the university, and the last time you checked in with the university, they were being shitty to her and gave them this dilapidated shed that leaks all the time. And she goes, the university, in honor of all of their good works, has decided to give them a new state-of-the-art laboratory that's got all the best equipment and that everyone in the world will be jealous of because it's just the best lab that's ever existed. <laughs> and he goes, gee, thanks for the scoop. And runs off. Oh, no. He at first thinks that she's there, the Curie's servant. Right. And then does eventually reveal to him that she is Mary Curie. And his first day on the job or whatever, he manages to score this very difficult to get interview. Oh, that was a cute, nice little scene. It's kind of disconnected from the rest of the movie. But all the cute, nice little parts of this movie are totally disconnected from the rest of the movie. So that's fine. And then she walks over to Pierre Curie and goes, I'm so excited about the big ceremony we're going to have for the lab, which is actually real and not just a thing I was bullshitting to a reporter to make the university do it. And he goes, me too. And I go, what? Yeah, <laughs> like I thought I, I totally <laughs> thought that was the whole point was like, OK, this is going to get printed in the paper and then they're going to have to. Right. It'll embarrass the university into doing the right thing. And instead, it's just, like, totally real, and she just never told a reporter before, and it's like, why not? <laughs> like, I don't, okay. But then, after that incredibly weird moment, we have the even more incredibly weird moment where Pierre Curie goes like, oh, this has been such a nice vacation. You know, in the middle of vacation, I thought I was gonna die and never do any important work again. And she goes, what? <laughs> Which is a natural response. Right. And he goes, oh, I don't know. It's just like, it's act three now. I feel like I'm marked for death. Apparently this is how he died. At least he did die in a street accident and uh, basically was had his head crushed. Oh, yes. But not necessarily going to buy her earrings yeah. on the night of their big deal event because she looked so beautiful he had to run out the door. <laughs> it is not that I'm questioning that he dies at a dramatically convenient moment. This whole movie is clearly structured around how she reacts to his death as the big dramatic end of the film. And that's fine. It's that he, on vacation, just sort of muses about how he believes he is fated to die <laughs> um, just before he does, because the movie sort of feels like it hasn't set up its his death sufficiently. And it's like, well, you kind of can't set up his death sufficiently. He dies of a tragic accident. Yeah, that's how those work. Right. What else is wild is when they do begin to set up her death, which is like, very long and ongoing because of the radiation exposure from dealing with radioactive elements. She goes to the doctor and has these birds on her hands. And the doctor's like, yeah, that could someday turn into cancer. Her husband says, well, maybe we should stop. If this is the case, I don't want anything to happen to you. And she's like, no, no, it'll be fine. Just that it might be cancerous-ish someday, maybe. And then they cheat us out of her death in the movie. <laughs> 
It is like never addressed again. Her health is totally fine as far as we can tell. Yeah. Not that anything happens at all for 25 years after his death. Right. Until the last scene of the movie. It's so bizarre. So like Susan says, they come back from vacation. They are going to go to the fancy ceremony. She has this fancy new dress. He goes off to get her earrings and then is unceremoniously killed by a wagon running him over, which happened in real life. Have no problem with that becoming the dramatic focus of Act 3, because, like, of course. Right. She loses it, and the professor from Act 1 comes back and goes like, Hey, remember the very first scene of the movie where you, like, were inspired by science so much you would carry on through anything? Well, just reminding you of that while the worst thing you could imagine happened to you, and there's still science to do. Anyway, I'm gonna go. <laughs> She pulls out of it and decides to keep working. And you're like, yeah. And then she does the most interesting work of her career, even without her husband, who's tragically died. And instead of seeing any of that, we jump 25 years in the future. She gives a speech about how important and great her husband was. And the work of science is never finished and the movie's done. Yeah. Which essentially felt like an excuse to get her in old woman makeup to definitely secure that Oscar nomination. Oh, for sure. And nothing else. Because the speech is also so fucking disconnected from the rest of the film. It's like, and the lesson of science is an eternal march of progress. And it's like... Really? Because the lesson of science in your life seems to be that you just feel stuck in one place forever and ever and ever until one day you make an amazing breakthrough just because of your sheer perseverance, which has nothing to fucking do with this speech. Right. It feels like a last minute reshoot. We need a bigger, more inspiring ending than her deciding to do more science. Yeah, except that, you know, the doing more science would have been more interesting. Again, this movie is not about her, despite being called Madame Curie. It is about, at best, it is about her relationship to her husband. And if we're being brutally honest, it is about Pierre and how he loved her. Yeah. And then essentially died because of it, because the way that they make this tragic accident happen is that he just had to buy her those earrings because she looked so beautiful in her fancy dress for their award event. Yeah. Were they going what were they getting the award for? It wasn't the Nobel Prize. It was No, it was just the ceremony for their new lab that they were being given because of discovering radium. Oh right, right, right. <sighs> You know, there's this sort of start a script as late as possible and end it as early as possible. And it, this film feels like it was made from all of the parts that you would cut out if you were following those instructions. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with that. There are some good performances and some interesting character moments in there. But OK, when are we going to get to the fireworks factory? Oh, wow. They finally discovered radium. There's like 30 minutes left in the film. She's really become Marie Curie now. No, we never see that. We just see her reacting to the death of her husband and then skip 25 years in the future where, like you say, from that scene, you would think, well, she never does any important work ever again. Radium is the last thing she ever does as a scientist. Right, which is not at all what happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. At all. She worked tremendously after that. I mean, basically until 
the day that she died. She does a lot of interesting work after this and has an interesting life after this. Becomes very political. Works with basically every famous scientist whose name you've ever heard of, at least, between the time her husband dies and the time she dies. She also did this really cool stuff during World War One, which I feel like would have been so interesting to put in the movie, where she was the director of the Red Cross Radiology Service and built these mobile x-ray units, essentially, so that they would be close to the front so that when people were injured, they could get x-rays nearby, which is way cooler than anything that happens in this movie. Yeah. And she drove these around, mobile x-ray units, during the war in France to basically battlefields. Yeah, God. Everything post his death on this Wikipedia page is so much more interesting than this movie. And to be fair, a lot of the stuff pre his death on this Wikipedia page is more interesting than this movie. But like that 25 year time jump has so much cool stuff in it. Like her second Nobel Prize. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So this movie is essentially the inverse of everything that you would want in a biopic. It is all the stuff that you would cut. And none of the stuff that you would keep. The result is just this movie was so boring. I wasn't even like mad at it or anything. I just was watching the movie, waiting for the movie to start. And then the movie was done. (laughs) Yep. It doesn't go anywhere. I guess what it is leading up to is Pierre's death. But then why is it called Madame Curie? And the only thing I can think is that it's called Madame Curie in that A Star is Born way of like, everyone, this is Mrs. the guy that died. (laughs) I mean, yeah, basically. Which kind of is her last speech. In the movie, yeah. Mrs. the guy that died. Uh. Uh, But that's so exactly what it is, which is depressing. Not just from, you know, the standpoint of she lost her husband, but also from the standpoint of this is one of the most interesting and accomplished women scientists of all time. And certainly in 1943 would have been. And they made a movie that was about how great her husband was. At least in A Star is Born, you could kind of do a like Taming of the Shrew thing where you could tweak it and go, okay, now obviously the direct reading of this is that she's decided to like continue on honoring his memory. But there's this cheeky subversive read of, Oh, she's kind of decided to go on being famous and use his death as fuel for her continued fame in a sort of interesting way. Not in a way where she's a terrible person for it. She's just totally become a famous person when even the death of her husband becomes subsumed to the fame. And you can't really do that with this. It just is this weird thing where she's the most famous, accomplished female scientist on the planet Earth, but in this she spends the next 25 years telling everybody that her husband was actually the important one, and they need to continue his important work that they did together. And it's just boring. I didn't love it. It wasn't infuriating in the watching of it, but I definitely felt... I don't know. I felt pretty angry about the fact that they made this movie about her husband. Yeah. It's an incredibly sexist 
approach to telling the story of one of the most accomplished women scientists of all time. Yeah, and it, it it's interesting. There's a little bit on the Wikipedia page about the Dreyfus affair and that she only tangentially was sort of caught up in that wave of xenophobia. This is kind of weirdly similar to the Emil Zola biopic we watched in that this movie occasionally goes... People are unfair to her because of gender. I hope that didn't offend anyone. Okay, bye. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It doesn't even really deal with any of the fighting of that. It's just like, oh, well, people don't think that women should be scientists. Of course, no people that are in this movie, but people who are in this movie are occasionally going to mention it. Yeah, it's not a thing she has to fight against, really. It's just a thing people mention that she has to fight against. Like, you never watch her fight against it. You never watch anyone put a barrier in her way because of it. The closest thing is the university not really giving them good enough facilities when they're trying to discover radium. But the movie has made what they have and haven't discovered so confusing. Right. That you can't quite figure out whose side you're on in that. Because Pierre is clearly getting overly emotional because he loves his wife and can't figure that out. You know, that's his character game. Right. And she seems to feel he's getting overly emotional and is happy to take the shed. But he is the only person ever saying, hey, if this is about her being a woman, then fuck off. And you never really get a clear sense if that is what's going on. And her reaction, if it is, is, eh, what are you going to do? And, eh. Honestly, I'm spending too much time on this movie. It was boring. We should wrap this episode up. It doesn't deserve me fretting about what it could have done better this much. Uh... Two? Yeah. I want to give it a three for, like, not being racist, but, like, not enough to, like, I don't have the wherewithal to defend that number, so two. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's sidestepping all of the actual issues that she faced as an immigrant and as a woman is as bothersome to me as the Emil Zola one, where they never say the word Jew. Yeah. (laughs) When his whole thing was that he was defending this man against anti-Semitism, and they're like, well, don't talk about the fact that he was Jewish. Yeah. I think about this joke all the time from when Jon Stewart hosted the Oscars, and I think it is the best joke I've ever heard an Oscar host do, and is also why I think he wasn't ever invited back to host the Oscars again. (laughs) Yeah. Because instead of just coming out and going like, hey, Jack Nicholson, you look old, but all your girlfriends don't. There was this long video of Hollywood tackles big social issues and had big dramatic swelling music and was a history of Hollywood dealing with social issues. You come back out and the lights come back up and Jon Stewart goes, and none of those things were ever problems ever again. (laughs) This is a big and none of those things were ever problems ever again movie. Yes. She has to solve sexism, and also sexism has to not really be that big of a thing. This can't indict the audience in any way. It can only make them feel good that a woman accomplished so many things. And God, that's boring. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, so two. I'm fine with a two. Don't watch this movie. Yeah. We didn't talk about Greer Garson looking weirdly to me like Meryl Streep in this movie. I think it's just the hair. Uh Oh! There's something about the haircut they give her. They kind of have some similar facial 
things going on. It's not like t- Meryl Streep time traveled and took Greer Garson's place or anything. It's just when you have nothing to focus on in the movie of interest, you're just looking at her face and going, now why does she look 80% like Meryl Streep? Because she hasn't in any of the other movies we've watched. <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't a big thing. If you are kidnapped by terrorists and forced to watch this film, a good way to get through it is to think about how Greer Garson kind of looks like Meryl Streep through a lot of it. That is one thing you could do. (laughs) Or you could just completely zone out and, I don't know, think about anything else. Yeah. Don't watch this movie. No. Next week is our last film in 1943, which is The Song of Bernadette. By the way, were you proud of me when you said second to last at the start of this episode that I did not attempt to correct you and go next to last? (laughs) I finally learned my lesson. Well, I specifically said that instead of penultimate because I wasn't sure that, you know. Oh, I fucked them both up, Susan. I'm an idiot about both of them. (laughs) Okay. It is the next to last, yes. The one you are currently listening to, everyone, is the next to last episode for 1943. But yeah, it's The Song of Bernadette is our last film, which is a biographical drama film based on a novel of the same name about a saint. Well, I mean, we have such a good history with both religious films and biopics that I can't imagine how this one could go wrong. Uh, yeah. (sighs) This is one that I have been specifically dreading, but um, we'll see how it shakes out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, at least the poster's no good. That's, that's all I got to say for the- And Vincent Price is in it. Oh, that could be fun. Yeah. 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 So tune in next week to find out if this ends up being as uncomfortable for me (laughs) as I anticipate that it will be. Yeah. And until then... This was apparently written by Aldous Huxley, but I spent last week thinking last week's movie was written by Aldous Huxley, because that would have made a lot more sense, right? Because this movie has nothing. Like, it's not a movie. And it doesn't feel weird enough for Aldous Huxley to have been anywhere near it. Maybe he wrote that one scene with the radium. Yeah. Like, I guess... And then you put a light at the bottom of a bowl was like the entire... influence of Aldous Huxley on this film. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this wasn't a movie. It wasn't even a biographical novel about Marie Curie. It was like volume one of a three-volume biography of Marie Curie written by somebody who doesn't really care about this part of her life. Uh, (sighs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye. We have made many discoveries. Pierre Curie in the suggestions we have found in his notes and in thoughts he expressed to me has helped to guide us to them. But no one of us can do much. Yet each of us perhaps can catch some gleam of knowledge which modest and insufficient of itself may add to man's dream of truth.